Being O-Line Media presents The History of Being Black. Welcome to another episode of The History of Being Black. I am still honored and privileged to be your host, Eunice Elliott. And you know, if you've been listening, we have some of the brightest minds in the country joining us. And this week is no different. We have Dr. Ray Block Jr. from Penn State University to chat with us today. This is your first time to The History of Being Black. So first of all, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. And I'll go ahead and warn you now, even though we haven't even started, once you have done the show, then you are recording required to answer our calls when we reach back out for future episodes. All right, please okay. and thank you. Okay, so uh, first of all, I'd like for you to tell me a little bit about your background, primarily your, your, your background and why you decided to pursue education, why you decided to become a professor, and why did you choose to focus and research on your area of expertise? Okay, so I'm going to give you the elevator two-minute version of it, and then I'll build back into it after that. Everything good in my life, I can contribute to access to education. And so because all of these good things that have happened to me have been associated with me either being in school or me being an avid learner, I just figured I'd write it out. And so rather than thinking about school as being something you finish after so many years, I just like the idea of being a perpetual learner. And what better way to do that than to be an educator? Now, that's the overall way of thinking about it. The, the more interesting way is that I started out, like most people, not knowing what the hell I was going to do. And so as a kid, I was actually at a multilingual and multicultural elementary school. And so I learned English and Spanish at the same time. I'm from California, so it made sense to pick Spanish as the other language to learn. I actually, at one point in time, because I had humble beginnings, thought that I would take the skill set that I had where I could at the time speak English and Spanish and be an interpreter in courtroom. So I had this whole plan that like, you know, I'd be in the courtroom and I'd have a check coming in and somebody would speak Spanish and I would speak English and I'd help out the judge, right? And so that plan ended up getting put on hold when I got to college. And when I got to college, I was inspired to think a little broader about what it is that I could do with the ability to speak two languages. And at the time, I went to college at Howard University in Washington, D.C. You know, politics is everywhere. Mm-hmm. And so I started thinking to myself, what if I did this in some kind of capacity of a foreign service? You know what I mean? Like, I couldn't tell you exactly what I would be doing, but in my mind, I would be speaking Spanish, right? I would be speaking English <laughs> for people who spoke Spanish, and I'd be translating Spanish over in some kind of way, right? So my big idea about this is I took the foreign service exam my junior year in college and flunked it. It wasn't for me. Okay. It was <laughs> Yeah, but I was still I was still at a university in Washington D.C. taking a bunch of classes, and I gravitated towards the political theory classes. I was a philosophy major, and it just made sense to like look at political theory and democratic theory and stuff like that. And I ended up pairing myself with a mentor, and I just did what he said. He said, look, get good grades in poli sci, you might be able to go to graduate school. So I said, okay. I got into graduate school. He said, look, pick this particular grad school to go to. And I said, okay. I just followed what I followed my instructions. I was good for that, right? I got to grad school and realized that what they call political theory in my field looks like math, and it doesn't look like philosophy. And I immediately realized, the way I realized with the Foreign Service Gazette is that wasn't for me. And so I started thinking about what it meant to be me. And I grew up in a world where it was pretty clear, bad role that negative stereotypes can play on marginalized groups. I understood that intimately because I had seen it happen to me. I had seen it happen to people like me. I understood from a very experiential standpoint what social inequality was and how terrible that is. And even as a youngster, I started to realize that a lot of this has to do with the way that systems are set up. And because systems are set up a certain way, people act a certain way once they're put inside of those systems. So I was thinking like I'm someone who knew the role of institutions, even though I didn't have a vocabulary for it, right? That kind of thinking 
once I got to graduate school, inspired me to look at social inequality as an area of study. So not only was it something I could kind of speak to because it happened to me, but I actually started realizing I was interested in studying it too. In my field, the people that do that, or at least the people I thought did a really good job of that, were in political psychology. And so I have a degree in American government in political science, and I specialize in political psychology. And in political psychology, I pay a lot of attention to race relations and how the things that our systems put in place can affect how we think about groups and can think about how we behave in the relationships that we have with groups of people. On a day-to-day basis, what that means is I teach classes in American government. Every now and then I do research papers that look at social inequality broadly defined. And outside of that, I'm also a faculty member in the African-American Studies Department at Penn State. And inside of that department, there's a very strong tradition of doing community-engaged work. So it's not just enough to be smart or just to be in a classroom. That's, well, that's noble work, right? But beyond that, what we do is we try to make sure that the work matters beyond the university. That type of feeling is very compatible with some of the work I do outside of the university. And outside the university, I'm a community-engaged pollster. And that means I design surveys for clients. And I usually do that while I'm working with the African-American Research Collaborative. So I'm, I'm placing my product <laughs> in the podcast so I can give a shout out to that organization. And I've been working with them since 2013. And what we do as survey researchers is we figure out what communities of interest want to study. We ask them, they tell us. We help them to build surveys that allow them to ask people in their communities what's important. And from time to time, we actually help them to test what kind of messages would be really effective for delivering what kind of things that they want to deliver for those communities. So it kind of feels like mobilization strategy meets survey research, meets the needs of marginalized communities. And we argue that there's a real need for people like us out there because a lot of the media narratives that are being driven now, they're based on information that's coming from places that don't necessarily have really good representation in the communities that we're in. And the way those messages are being interpreted, in other words, the way that the results from these polls are being interpreted doesn't always reflect my understanding as a scholar of color who specializes in politics and who specializes in inequality and social justice and stuff like that. Well, that was an answer, right? That was an answer. So a couple of questions from that answer. What is the importance, as you have seen as a researcher, as a professor, and as a student in learning this? What's the point of having these surveys and researching and finding out what the community thinks and feel? What? Why is that important? I feel like a lot of this is practical. So like, um, there's a real, I don't know, I want to call it the learning stuff because it's really fun to learn elements of what we do as academics. But I'm in two worlds. I'm in that academic world. I'm also in the practical world where you need to do something to make a difference, right? So to give you an example of it, this summer, we we, we launched this really big survey on vaccine uptake. And we treated, or at least the way I'm grounded into thinking about this, I treat it like a political mobilization question. So the same way that you might say, okay, how do you get more people out to vote? What can you do? What can I say? to someone who's on the fence that would make them more inclined to get registered, make them more inclined to stand out in the line or do whatever they need to do to vote, right? Well, substitute vote with rolling up your sleeve and getting a shot, right? Like, you know, like, what can I do to reassure people who are on the fence about it to get a shot? Like, what messages would work and what messages are really not helping the case? We did a survey where we actually asked those kinds of questions. We wanted to know how people felt about getting vaccinated. And we wanted to know if certain ideas about getting vaccinated were more persuasive than other ideas. So there was a, you know, like, I want to learn stuff from you element to the research that we were doing. But there was also some message testing. 
that we were doing in that poll because we wanted to see where the messages popped and we wanted to see how we could help to deliver those specific kinds of messages. Now, the subtext to all of this is that when we do surveys like this, we really go out of our way to reach hard to reach populations. And so we made sure that we have really good representation for people from a broad swath of demographic categories inside of our survey because we wanted to know if the messages were different depending on whether you were African-American, for example, or white American. We wanted to know whether or not people in the South were responding differently to certain types of messages than people in the Northeast were. And more importantly, we wanted to make sure that we had the representation of young people in that survey because there might be messages that just pop more with young people than older people. One of the major findings that we found in there, if I can just talk about one, I was actually thinking about this the other day, is that when we put our survey together, it was in it was in June slash July of this year. A lot has happened. We're in November now. But at the mm-hmm. time, it was really important because one of the big markers was the president was actually at the time talking about getting what was it, 70 to 80 percent. I guess I could check that in. But the goal was that we wanted like a certain level of vaccination nationally. And it was part of the summer's goal, right? The summer goal was to get that many people vaccinated so that we could continue on with whatever the public health-related narratives would be for this kind of thing. We actually spent a lot of time thinking about this for our survey. And what we ended up finding is that now we're at this place where people who can get vaccinated can't, for the most part. There are some places where it's really hard to get access to it. And I would argue that there are some sign-up challenges for some people to get. But I would say generally, we've done a, what I think is okay job making the vaccine accessible to people. Now, there are some reasons for why some people will refuse to get them. Some of those reasons have to do with politics, but they're not all political. But I think we're at a place now because so many people have gotten vaccinated and the number of people who are on the fence is manageable at this point. One of the findings that we found, and it was a very clear finding, is that a lot of people think doctor's offices would be a nice place to get vaccinated. So if you're like me, I remember when I got mine, I was in like, it was like the gymnasium or some public school. Yeah. I went to get mine. You know what I mean? Like, it was a great setup. Like, the volunteers there were amazing, and they have a lot of people all at the, apparently, like, all at a very efficient clip, right? There are some people that they would just feel really fun doing that. There aren't the people that are going to go to see you. They're just not, right? They're not going to go to that place where they can get jabbed in the arm and sit in the parking lot for a little while to make sure everything takes well, right? There are some people that just need that privacy. They need the one-on-one kind of interaction that you get with a doctor, right? Mm-hmm. Where when a doctor recommends something, you trust your doctor, you're more inclined to follow through with whatever that request is, right? And to use the analogy for the flu shot, I mean, like in my history, like a lot of times what we would do is we would go in and get checkups and the doctors and nurses would recommend, you know, like as part of your checkup, would you like to get set up to get your flu shot? Right. right. I'm not saying it could be exactly that way, but our survey suggested that that would be a way that could move some of these hesitant people to not be hesitant and actually will up their sleeves and shut. Now, that suggests that we were doing research because we wanted to know why people felt the way they did. But we also wanted to use that research and we can make recommendations to people so that maybe, for example, conversations about doing it in doctor's offices now that the numbers are low enough that we can manage them. Whereas you're not expecting doctor's offices to take care of tens of millions of people. We're expecting them to take care of thousands and thousands of people, right? Like the idea would be that some people would actually just be more reassured about it if they did it that way than if they were to do it some other. And demonizing those folks isn't necessarily going to make them feel any better about getting this done, right? Maybe more public venues just aren't the way for these folks because they feel some kind of way in general about it. Maybe their communities 
are the kind of communities where you don't want to get caught, right? Being on, being back, like, you know, like doing the things that would sort of like put you in a position to be part of that crowd, which is part of the vaccinated crowd, just different from the unvaccinated crowd. I say all that because I'm realizing, and this is kind of the segue into the pandemic stuff, the dual pandemic thing, is that all of these social divisions we've had in our society already, the pandemic is basically poured gas in the air. So like political differences become really entrenched when people use them to support things that they need to support. If it's sensible for you as a politician, for example, to push a narrative about your team being oppressed and some other team being the oppressors, then you might even use that to mobilize. And I've seen stuff like that happen in a pandemic where what I'm going to call mitigating behaviors, wearing a mask, staying away from crowds, you know what I mean? Like getting vaccinated, stuff like that. What we've noticed is that political dialogues are starting to get woven into conversations about what you're going to do to protect yourself and to protect your community. And as a political scientist, I do find this fascinating, but I'm also terrified. And I'm terrified about it because the way this stuff cuts, like the groups that are vulnerable pre-pandemic, they're still vulnerable. And now we're talking about something that can really hurt you economically and physically and emotionally and psychologically, you name it, right? And so it's just a very difficult time to be alive and to be dealing with stuff. And I realize that I've been doing a lot of this vaccine uptake slash COVID-19 related research, not because it's my area. You know what I mean? I have no, honestly, I have no business doing research in public health as a political scientist. But as a political scientist, I can tell you something about inequality. I can tell you something about racism and class conflict and biases in our society that relate to marginalized groups, vis-a-vis groups that enjoy certain levels of privilege in our society. And because of that, I've been inspired to work with people who are in the public health field, who are doing stuff that feels a little more epidemiological, that feels more like the kind of stuff you would read in a medical journal so that we can team up, so that we can put our heads together and like figure out some way to think about these problems in ways that make sense what it feels that way. And so I will say, I'm, not, I'm never going to put the word good next to anything related to the pandemic. But one of the things that I think was facilitated in this time is that I've learned to be really multidisciplinary because you have to be. And I've learned to check my ego and work with people to solve problems because it's really important to work with people to solve problems. I've also learned that you can be a teacher and you can do stuff. And so like my position as a lowly professor at a research university doesn't preclude me from being active in my community in some kind of way and be making earnest attempts at trying to affect social change. So let me ask you, you you did say there's nothing good about the pandemic, but is there a split or duality of you as a researcher, but also as a a citizen of last year, that perfect storm after George Floyd was murdered, having the general election being what it was, and then adding in a pandemic from the researcher standpoint, point of view where you like salivating of all this perfect storm, but obviously you also are affected as everyone was affected. I think for me, it was more of a coping mechanism. I'm just going to be honest with you. Like, it's sad. I mean, mm-hmm. like a lot of people can say the same thing I would say. I mean, I've lost family members because of this. I've lost friends because of this. Some of the friends that I've lost are because of divisions in terms of how we view the world and politics, you know. I've spent a lot of time at home. Like, literally, we were talking about the fact that we haven't seen our family members in Louisiana in two years because we just didn't feel like comfortable. We didn't feel comfortable traveling. Like, you know, a lot of this hurts. 
And outside of being a teacher, I'm a human being too. You know what I mean? I walk around this world as a black person, making sense of these things as a person with a PhD, you know? And so for me, one of the things that I do is I hate to say it, I study things when I'm trying to like reconcile them in my mind. And that's what I do. I'm a professional researcher. And so as a professional researcher, I just applied research skill to a problem that I was feeling personally with the hopes that doing this kind of therapeutic and cathartic in some kind of way, but also practically speaking, because we need people to do this kind of work. And the more that I got into it, the more value I felt by the people that were outside of my field doing this work. And that kind of created the momentum I needed to continue to push in that direction too. So I wish I could say that it was a time where I was like, oh yeah, this is going to be great to study. But really, to be honest with you, inequality is not something that I actually want to exist. I actually want to be out of a job at some point, right? Like, you know, if racism disappeared tomorrow, I would be totally happy to dump everything that I'm trying to learn something else. Right. And, you know, be a professor of a different kind, you know? And so like, um, I actually would hope that the kinds of inequalities that COVID-19 pandemic has poured gasoline over would start to alleviate at some point as we become more tolerant as a country, as we become less inclined for misinformation as a country, and as people get over themselves more. But to be honest with you, I'm not very hopeful, right? Because I've been trying, I've been grappling with these questions for more than 15 years. And I imagine that I'll probably be grappling with these questions for 15 more. So tell me what in your mindset when you think of the next 15 years, or I'm curious even about the past 15, going to Howard University, being in D.C., having the heart and mind and passion that you've always had as a young person. How do you decide to go into academia versus politics? Or was that ever a choice? It seems like a very fine line based on the passion and knowing that you want to be part of the change and in the studying and the research of it. Do you see yourself pursuing politics or is that a definitive line for you that you would never pursue? I always tell people no. But really, to be honest with you, I don't know what politicians do, to be honest with you. Like, um, we study them and we think about politicians as vote corruptors. You know what I mean? Like, there's this idea that politicians are primarily out to secure power and expand it. And I feel like I could say there's some truth to that, but I don't really know what goes on in the world of a politician. Like, I know that there are people that want to make change and they figure out that that's how they do it. I think that I'm situated nicely. I got a nice setup. I'm a teacher. And I like that education stuff. I do. You know what I mean? Like, it's a value to me. And like I say, it was kind of like a home for me. Like, you know, like in difficult times in my life, reading and learning and being in school and being able to evolve intellectually has always been a safe place. And so like, I feel like I'm properly situated where I am. It just so happens that I don't think education is value neutral, you know? And this might get me in a little trouble, you know what I mean? This is gonna go out on social media and stuff, but um, I honestly believe that these social divisions and social biases that we have in our country, I think they're bad. I think we should do something about them. Wait, you think that's a controversial opinion <laughs> that is bad? I don't, think, uh, I don't think it's a controversial opinion. I think it's a politically divisive thing. Okay. And as a student of politics, I know how this stuff goes, right? Like mm-hmm. I spend a lot of time communicating with colleagues of mine who are in an African-American studies department at a university where people's curricula are being questioned by politicians and there are media dialogues about what exactly students are learning in these colleges by these leftist people that teach these classes, right? So, like, I understand that being public-facing has cost you. It's not necessarily for the faint of heart. That said, I realized that I feel like I can do a lot of good work as an educator who happens to have a value orientation. And my value orientation is I think people should be good to each other. 
I think there should be less inequality. I really do believe that racism and sexism and intolerance and homophobia and things related to it are problems in our society we all have a duty to deal with. And because of that, in addition to being a teacher and a paper writer and a person who's on committees and stuff like that, I feel like it's natural for me to go outside of my, what I'm going to call day job boundaries, and think about ways to do stuff that I think might actually affect real change. So how, how can we, that's a perfect segue. We like to uh, wrap up each episode with ideas for our listeners to be the change, to activate. I'm curious if you can combine the two thoughts for me from okay. what you grew up, as you said, at a, a multicultural uh, upbringing in California, you know, going to school in DC and becoming a professor and a faculty member and someone who researches and studies this. Tell me the difference between what you saw in experience and what you see the young people that you uh, teach are experiencing. And then how do you galvanize them? And, and hopefully it can be something that our, our own listening audience can use to activate as well. I want to basically say from the outset that I respect and value what the young folks are doing. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying that because this was a conversation back when I was an undergrad. So back when I was in undergrad, we would have these conversations. It was like a lot of times with teachers and the teachers were of a certain age group. And they would basically say things like, you know, young youngsters don't know what needs to push for social change. Right. I feel like it's the generation gap argument. And a lot of my teacher colleagues at an HBCU were like of the civil rights movement generation. And so like it was the perpetual holding over the head of how active you know, that generation was on behalf of like making race relations better. And what that generation perceived to be a relative apathy or complacency or lack of something among young folks. And I remember like kind of feeling some kind of way when the old heads would talk about me like that. I make it a personal business to not be one of those old heads and to acknowledge the importance of what the young folks are doing. 2020 taught me a lot. Well, I'm going to say I've been basically relearning stuff Ever since 2008, back when Barack Obama was on the political scene, and I honestly didn't think he stood a chance because of what I understood about race relations in the United States. I'm glad to be wrong about that. But I'm just saying there's a lot of lessons to be learned. What happened in the summer of 2020 was a reckoning of national, international, historic proportions, right? I can't compare it to anything because I don't think it compares to anything. Now, I'm not saying it was the civil rights movement of that generation because it wasn't. The civil rights movement had a lot of things about it that I just don't think naturally fit. For one, it was about voting rights, or at least ostensibly speaking, voting rights was one of the major agenda items when it comes to what was going on with the civil rights movement. There was what I want to call seminal figures, that people could point to. Mm-hmm. And it had a very dude kind of feel to it. You know what I mean? It right. had a very black man sort of way, sort of like kind of way about it. That's not what you get in 2020. That's not what the BLM vibe is. The BLM vibe is very open, very not just black dudes, right? Very much into what I'm going to call coalition building across a whole bunch of demographic categories. I'm talking about sexuality, gender, race, social class, and all of that. And there was one thing that I would say is in common is that the civil rights movement, partly some of the success that it had is that white people got involved in it too. Mm-hmm. A lot of researchers who do this, and actually me and some colleagues are looking at some stuff about this now. Like there were a lot of white people who were all like joined arm in arm, you know, right. protesting against racial injustice. Now you can argue about whether or not those coalitions are lasting. You can argue about whether those movements and whether those protests created policy change. Some people wanted more. Some people feel like those things are symbolic and nothing else. I'm just here to tell you that 
I can't look a young person in the eye and say they're not about that. Right. After what I saw in the summer of 2020. And there was a lot of perfect storms. Uh, people were probably sick of being at home. And like, you know, like the, um, the match that set off everything were these killings happening when literally nobody's outside. Right. You know what I mean? So like, um, like the number of killings may or may not have decreased, but the number of like the level of access that people have to each other was limited. Right. Social media played a lot to do with that. But of course, right. did because we're talking about this generation. Right? And I see the reckoning of 2020 is looking a lot like a, I'm not going to say leader of this movement because I don't think that gives credit to what's going on. But it's really hard to pin it on somebody. Right. The opposition would love to do that. Like the opposition would love to say that so and so is responsible for the racial reckoning. So let's attack so and so. And if we attack so and so and discredit so and so, then that's it. Right. I don't really feel like the movement worked that way. I feel like it was very decentralized and it was very ground up and it was really an outpouring of people expressing themselves politically in a very emotional way and in a very lasting way, you know? And so I salute young people for doing that. And so I say, keep that up, <laughs> if I can say anything. And as, as an educator, I feel like one of the things that I need to do as part of my job is to make sure that people understand that all of the problems that we're talking about that exist in society, they exist on campuses too. And that means that the marginalization that the world is experiencing actually shows up in how universities run and how classrooms run and how the people in classrooms are too. And that means that I'm constantly reminding of what these inequalities are while they're taking my classes. And sometimes people need those reminders. Other times people need to feel like it's safe to talk about, which is actually very difficult now too. And more important than that, I feel like it's really important for me to be me in that position. And I can't say enough about that. Like I realize I've seen people kind of do a double take when they figure out I'm in the front of the class. Right. Because they haven't seen black people before, but they probably hadn't seen black teachers with PhDs at a research university very often. And if I'm their first one, you can tell the eyebrow kind of goes up a little bit like, hey, let's see what this person is about. That happens in general, but I've seen it specifically be important for students of color who are sitting in the classroom thinking to themselves, okay, even if I can't relate to this guy on a whole bunch of levels, maybe I can relate to him on some levels. And I want to give him a chance, whereas I might have been a little more laid back on this. So what should our listeners do once we listen to Dr. Ray Block Jr. from Penn State University? Give us all these nuanced thoughts that we don't normally think about just as, I guess, lay people who aren't researching, aren't studying the survey results. What can we do right now after we listen to this episode to be part of that change? In addition to what you mentioned, young people still being galvanized, uh, continuing. I I like the way you said... um, as far as our allies, will they stay activated? You know, I think some of them thought it was more of a sprint versus a marathon last year. But what can we do right now to hashtag be the change? I feel like you just remember that you can do something. And so, like, that's revolutionary in and of itself. Like, there are a lot of people out there that feel like they can't do anything. Like, you know, I'm not a politician or I'm not rich or I don't know a whole lot about this, that. Or people just aren't going to listen. Feeling like you can actually try try stuff to affect change is a big deal. And part of being able to do that is not ever feeling like it's too late to learn things, right? Uh-huh. I've had conversations with family members who are vaccine hesitant. And you would think that these conversations would be like, I don't know, divisive things. But just being able to talk to people, yeah, maybe because I have education and this a little more than another class, right? But we've converted some people to get vaccinated. That's a thing, right? Right. I can put that on a checklist. Like, you know, that could happen in a family. That could happen with a neighbor. What I mean, like, I'm not saying that people need to go out there and spend energy in ways that might be futile. But I never want anybody to feel like it's futile to do anything. 
And so I just want people to feel inspired. You know what I mean? Like whoever you are in whatever circumstances you have, if you feel like there are problems in society that need to be addressed, maybe you're the person or maybe you're the person to address them. You could do something and who knows, you might be successful in doing whatever you're doing. And for me, it's just been a matter of figuring out what I can do in my position that suits my temperament, because that's important too. And that also works within the parameters of what it is that I'm willing to accept and what it is that I'm willing to give out in terms of effort. But the whole point of it is no one should feel like they can't. The other thing is I feel like um, when you stop learning and when you stop evolving, there are real problems. So I want people to feel like it's never too late to learn something. If we're talking about COVID, it's never too late to learn some news about what's going on with stuff related to it. And who knows, it's never too late to sometimes reevaluate what it is that you're getting in terms of your information about what's going on too. Thank you for that, uh, Dr. Ray. I mean, that, that's, that's a lot to think about and a simple way to think about it is know that you can do something, know that there's always something for you to learn. Whatever your positioning is in life, there is something that you can do to affect the change. And so uh, that's something that all of our listeners can hopefully feel empowered by and know that they can do something, whatever it is to affect the change in a positive way. Thank you so much again, Dr. Ray Block Jr. Uh, for joining us here on the History of Being Black. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, we will be calling calling you back because as the world continues to be the world, we will always have something to talk about. So we really appreciate you taking time out to spend with us. And as always, we love that you guys are still tuning in and listening. And so until next episode, take care of yourselves and we'll see you then. The History of Being Black podcast is hosted and produced by Eunice Elliott. Associate producer, Ariel Mancibo. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find the History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Odyssey, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcast, And on IG and Twitter at History of Being Black. The History of Being Black podcast is a mean old lion media production.